Good morning and welcome back to the Isle of Faces. Welcome to another Scraps and Scrolls. We're still going through the Winds of Winter preview chapters and you have arrived just in time for us to delve into the majesty that is the chapter, Mercy. Hello, thank you for joining us. I am your jolly green giant, your jack of all glades. Again, like I say, here to take you through a Scraps and Scrolls. Will I go rogue, start talking about the NBA playoffs, say, ah, oh, sorry LeBron, you tried your best when you fell over a player's eight inches smaller than you and rolled around on the floor grabbing your shoulder, but it didn't work. You lost game one. <laughs> well, it's possible. I might start delving into all that, but I'll try and resist. I'll try and keep on topic view. Might have to slip in a few more laughs about the Lakers here and there, but not quite yet. For now, I remain focused. I remain here on the aisle. I am talking to you from a, an actual sunny day. Actually pretty rare over here in England at the moment. I would put money down on this being the wettest May of all time, I think, so hopefully June will bring us more. But this morning, the sun did shine on me and Princess Zelda. As we ran through the grass, it is as uh, picturesque as you're imagining. The dog, a bit better looking than me, but still something for you all to picture. Now then, busy week on the aisle, because by now, because by the time you are listening to this, you should have seen that part two of the 100 questions on the Winds of Winter, that series that myself and Emily of the Eerie are sharing, has now been posted. Again, depending on when you're listening, maybe it's only on Patreon for now, that'll be there first for a few days, but it'll be on public soon enough, so it's not too long a wait. And we had another blast recording that. More great questions from yourselves, some from us as well. I like to think me and Emmy are now really clicking, getting used to each other. I think you can tell the difference already. I'm sure you can as well. And yes, just fun getting through these questions, these really brilliant, interesting questions about the winds of winter. I won't go through them all for you now, but just to give you a little tease, there's talk of locations that we haven't seen yet that we'd like to see. I'm not going to give you too many guesses on which one I chose. I think you probably can guess if you're a long-time listener. There was talk of which storylines we find hardest to predict. That was a really cool, interesting one because you don't get to talk about that as often do. So that's something new for everybody. We wondered what new Valerian steel swords we might see. We even had a go at naming our own, which is pretty fun. I encourage you to take part in as well and much more lady stoneheart what's going on in the veil well 10 more questions questions 11 to 20 so if you haven't yet i implore you to go over and listen to that and to let us know your opinions of course give us your answers some of you have already some of you have given really really good ones they're really fun for me and emily to read we will include those in future episodes as well and you can always give us more questions we have got 100 written down by now but hey yours might be much better than one i thought of i'm quite happy to get rid of mine include yours so definitely of course seek out part one if you haven't yet but now part two should be available to you in terms of other updates this past sunday just a couple of days ago seeing as we're talking about emily she was a guest over on the here be dragon stream i'm pretty sure it was sunday she was there to talk to our good friend stephen stark as well as some other guests about dungeons and dragons her other great love her other great passion she was really into all that she knows her stuff she ran a really really successful campaign that's just wrapped up on the radio westros discord chat that i know everyone loved and was very appreciative of so if you get the chance go over there as well I'm sure more than a few of you are avid listeners to Hibby Dragons anyway, but just in case you're not, that's another recommendation for me. And you can go and see Emily and give her support as well, because well, the aisle is a supportive place, as you will well know, and you all constantly prove, because you are wonderful in your support and your listens and your downloads and all of that good stuff that I thank you for every single week. And I always will thank you for every single week, because I am thankful and amazed, and it's just brilliant. If you can, spread the word. If you can, subscribe or even give us a rating or something like that. That is always, always brilliant 
Patreon and, well, I'll love you forever. Everybody is always welcome here on the aisle, as you know. Patrons especially are so much appreciated. We've had some newbies joining up recently. That's something else that me and Emily are going to be tackling soon. We're going to be adjusting the tiers and adding more benefits. Basically, as soon as we find the time, because, well, it is busy work cranking out scraps and scrolls and the 100 questions. And there's still Sporkle Spectacular to come. That'll probably be with you by the weekend, don't forget. I know I keep saying it, but it will get there, don't worry. Emily's patron-only interview episode, that's around the corner. And Scraps and Screens is still to come, but we will get to the patron at some point. But before we do any of that, before I do anything else at all, of course, I must thank some specific patrons. So, to that end, let me extend the most heartfelt of thanks to Gardener Queen, to Lomas Knight Rider, survivor of the Yeen Sleepover, to Grizzly M, Glenn T, Aegon the Sip, Lord Commander Namian Darklin, K.M., it is also my extreme pleasure to welcome two new patrons to the Green Trunks tier. That is Eric F, who's a new patron, and Brandy T, who has upped to her tier. She was a former patron anyway. My incredible, incredible thanks to you both. And to round it out, of course, our thanks to Archmaster June, heel of the Lesser Boxes. Thank you, everybody, both new and old, both those patrons named there and everyone else as well, and to all listeners. Yeah, I do say it every week, and I'm sure it does get repetitive, but that's never going to change because it just means so, so much. You send incredible messages. I, if I had time, I'd do a whole podcast just sharing those because the kind words that you tell me, that you give to me, uh, don't know. Don't even know how to qualify it, really. It doesn't seem deserved to me, but I'm glad you think it is. Yeah, it is a lot of work getting this podcast out and getting this amount of episodes out, but if it's useful to you, it's worth doing for me and for Emily as well. I know she feels the same way and she extends her thanks. But for now, let's move past the preliminary because we've got a lot to tackle today, let me tell you. It is a big, big day here on the aisle. It has to be said because today is the day we finally return to one of our favourites, to one of the absolute most important people in all of Song of Ice and Fire. And that's not hyperbole, let me tell you. Yes, at long last, we return to Aya as we tackle the chapter known as Mercy. So already here at the beginning, I'm setting up a distinction for you. There's two things to discuss. Two things that are really important and that we really want to get to. The character and then the chapter. Every preview makes us hungry. Every preview is long awaited, of course. But this one, Mercy, is probably the most famous, I would guess. This one, or perhaps the Forsaken, they're the ones that get spoken about the most in the fandom. They're the ones that have received the most attention from our content creators and the ones that have been critically picked apart piece by piece the most often. And there's a reason for that. It's because there is so much to discuss from this Mercy chapter, right across the spectrum, from beginning to end. And the people, the readers, the fandom, they rightly love it. We are talking big leagues here today, people. As a rule, you'll know I don't go looking up what other people have said about a chapter before we cover it in Scraps and Scrolls episode. Like I say, most of you know that already. I never have done. I don't go to Reddit or I don't go and listen to the podcasts of our many, many friends because one of the worst things I can imagine is subconsciously taking idea from one of those people or forgetting who said it and then thinking I've made it up or presenting it as my idea or something like that. I don't ever want to come at these chapters influenced by others. I want to come in clean. That's always been the case. But after I've recorded and posted the episode, sometimes I do go and have a look if I can find the time. And though inevitably, yes, I do get annoyed because I've probably missed something obvious that someone else has pointed out, I will also find hordes of ideas that I didn't think of or loads of brilliant takes. And I know for a fact that that is very much the case for this chapter because there is just so much out there concerning Mercy and the nature of the chapter and how it's written and the tone it is used and what it all means for Aya and everything else. There is bunches and bunches out there because this chapter is so important and so many people's favorites and it just has so much in it 
Out of all the previews, I'd put my money down for this being the most fully formed, the closest to like what we'll actually see in Wins, its final publication state. It is beautifully written in its way, even with how creepy and dark it can become at points. We'll cover that in a moment. It has some amazing lines, some of the best across all the preview chapters, the type that sets your skin to tingling. There's real drama. There's thematic resonance coming from every angle. It's great. This is a great, great chapter. And I can say all that despite the fact that I'd only read this once before coming to do this episode, as far as I remember. That's the kind of impression that it makes. I think it probably says something that last time out over our past two episodes, when we were talking about Ariane, we were discussing the really big storylines crashing into each other, the Dornish and the dragons, and, and how big that was for wins. And that was great, they're very important. Whereas this chapter, comparatively, is nothing to do with the overall. There's no big storyline here that's affecting everyone across the continent or the planet or anything like that. This is much more contained, but it leaves much more of a mark because that's just how good it is and it says something about the character we're talking about which we should focus on now that we've been talking about the chapter as a whole no 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 let's refocus in on who owns it our most beloved Aya Stark ever since we crossed over into the second act of the series and Aya changed from one of the top performers in terms of POVs per book to one of the rarities she went right down after we left Storm I feel like I struggle every single time that we do get one of her chapters to get across just how important it is when she shows up i'm talking in terms of emotion here i give it a good go i do try but it's just an impossible task because she is so important to us it does mean something when we finally see her much more than most characters not all maybe although for some yes but definitely most it really really does resonate it really is important and i mean we're just lucky we have to be lucky we have to say thank you the fact that this is included as a preview chapter imagine if it wasn't how annoying would that be so yes i will inevitably fail again i'm failing right now to get across how important that is how much it matters but then i think you all know as you read it and as you see it and as you think about i most of you anyway who are i fans it's not something that can really be put into words at least not by people skilled like i am others are much better than me at it but you all know don't you? Over the past couple of weeks, like I say, I've been going on about what a pleasure it was to finally return to a personal favourite of mine in Ariane. It had been oh so long. We had been given that teasing glimpse of her but hadn't actually seen her yet. And she was a favourite for her skill set and how she approached things and the storyline she propped up. And that is all well and true. Ariane, she's great, but she simply isn't on the same tier as someone like Aya. It's through no fault of her own. She can't help it. Most other people also aren't on that tier either, but Aya, like the other Stark children, is a cut above. We have our Triforce of Importance in Tyrion, Jon and Daenerys. We're always on about them. But as I've mentioned before, the Stark children, they hold their own like interlocking ring of emotional importance that is kind of on that top Triforce level, kind of not, but in our hearts, it most assuredly is. And for most, Aya will shine brightest of that trio. She is many people's favourite character, and I find it incredibly hard to disagree. I never pointedly ask myself that question, to be honest, but if I did, I would be saying her name quite often. She is an absolute force in the early books. We spent so, so much time with her, like every week we were talking about an Iron Chapter, because that's how often she comes up, especially in Clash and Storm. She was our camera for some of the most important action, some of the most important themes. I've said many times, I think perhaps the main point of the series is the effect that it has on the small folk, and Aya was our biggest proponent of that. In the same vein, revenge or vengeance is absolutely one of the biggest themes of the whole series, and while it touches on many, many different people, I don't think any other character embodies it as much as Aya. And I'm not going to get into a comparison of who's had it tougher, but Aya has definitely had it pretty damn tough, I think you'll agree. 
She's been a fan favourite from the beginning, right from when we first met her, when she was being friends with Jon Snow, and then everything that came after, when she lost her father, when she went through that awful time in the Riverlands at Harrenhal, when she was with the Brotherhood, and then Sandok again, and then after that, when we changed acts, everything we got in Bravos as well, that was still fan favourite stuff, even if it was very, very different. She's got plenty of other themes wrapped up in her story, in terms of the darkness, of the violence and murder, both her own and the things she's witnessed. She has connections to her father, connections to her mother. We had that mirror, that really strict mirror between her and Sansa as well. The discussion on identity, the protection of those who are weaker, like we said in the Riverlands chapters. The warging, let's not forget. There's heaps and heaps and heaps to uncover and talk about in Aya's arcs. And even if there weren't, she'd still be a favourite, simply because she in herself, as a character, as a person, is awesome. And to be honest, she only gets more awesome the further we go. The more time we spend with her, the more we like her. I won't take you back through our discussion of how she was lumped with the most chapter loss after Storm. I already mentioned it once, in fact. How she went from having the most and then down to three chapters and then just two chapters in dance. You've heard it all multiple times before, but consider how thrilling her feast and especially her dance arcs were. Sans and Bran, in comparison, they're still very much in promise mode. They've got big things coming and we've seen the preparation, but we're not quite there yet. Whereas with Aya, well, we're a little bit ahead of the game, especially now with this preview chapter. We've seen true progression. We've had some promises delivered on already. We had further, creepier mystery introduced. We had actual living magic in that last dance Aya chapter. And so much more of those themes that we just listed as Aya progressed through her training to become a killer and who knows what else. In terms of emotional complexity, the what we want versus what is right for a child versus what we should want for Aya, etc, etc, etc. I don't think any other character can actually outdo Aya in terms of sheer moral arguments and considerations. Not even one of the Triforce, who we do spend obviously hours and hours talking about their decisions and the moral quandaries they face in Jon and Daenerys and Tyrion. I think Aya actually has them beat out for what we want and what character wants and what actually happens and all that kind of thing. The ending of that dance arc, that incredible ending that one of my favourite chapters, it made us so hungry, even if we are further ahead than Bran or Sans in terms of progression yet. We still wanted more, 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 of course we do. We saw Aya reach a new stage, not for the first time either, and yet we still wanted more. We still wanted the next stage, we still wanted to see what effect that would have, and we're going to see at least some of that today. Uh, that last chapter, I tell you, of Dance, the ugly little girl, that was my favourite of the post-Storm Aya chapters by far. It blew me away, I think you'll remember. It wasn't that long ago in Scraps and Scrolls, it just was incredible and yes actually let's just give you a few numbers because remember Aya has had five chapters since Storm, Sansa's only had three plus a preview, Bran's only had three so Aya is very much in the lead, she does have the numerical advantage but also just a lot more in those chapters I think. She's been through so much, she's seen so much, it has changed her, she has suffered, she's been traumatised and it's hurt us to see and yet we still quite like that as a storyline from a meta point because of what Aya can be to us. We're actually pretty selfish in terms of the awesomeness that Aya can deliver based on this training and based on what she's become. We know how terrible and confusing and awful it is for her as a person, but in terms of our reading experience, if we mix it all together, it is thrilling. It is an exhilarating read. And that's even counting the feast chapters that I sometimes wasn't over the moon about. You all disagreed very, very strongly with me, and you were probably right. But like I say, that feast arc overall still was brilliant. That dance arc, especially the final chapter, The Ugly Little Girl, that was some of the very best and it leads us here today 
to another amazing chapter in Mercy, the one with the good lines, the one that is so expansive, and yet is also one of the most uncomfortable we've ever had to deal with, to be honest. I won't go too far into it now, we're going to cover that as we go through the actual text, of course, but in a variety of ways, yes, it does make us really actually uncomfortable with what we're going to have to deal with. We almost have to remind ourselves, as we, as we often do with Aya chapters, that we're speaking about a child here, a very young child. Like I say, I will save most of this for a little bit later on, but this is a chapter that doesn't only include the storylines and the vibes of murder and rape and stuff like that, but it's the way that it's presented that's actually quite chilling to us, the matter-of-fact way it's presented, the coldness that is presented, and the fact that we are talking about it in terms of Aya. She's aware, she's not intimidated by it, it's not, it's not shocking to her anymore, it's almost become run-of-the-mill, which is like the worst sentence you could say for a child isn't it how awful does that make you feel that i is just used to these types of things by now and yes it is a little bit different because we know how much death and murder have come into our storylines already whereas what happens in this chapter is a lot more sexualized more much more pointed towards that and sexual harassment sexual violence That'll become clear in a few more moments when we actually get down to the text, but it is it is a step above. It is something very different. I think that is a reason, one of the big reasons why so many have been able to look at it and provide some really, really great coverage of that and uh, George's decision of that and how it's presented and how it affects I and all these kind of things. We'll be making our own attempt in a moment. And yeah, I mean, there is just this darkness to this chapter it's wonderful of course we get to see Aya and ultimately not to spoil anything for you here it's a victorious chapter we get what we want Aya gets what she at least thinks she wants it's a moment for us as readers to cheer and yet the actual reading of it especially when you go back and look at it again it is very dark it is a chapter full of manipulation and lies and just the the stuff that goes on it just doesn't sit quite right at all it doesn't it's not nice basically and for some of you this will be a, a difficult chapter to get through but we'll we'll do our best we'll forge on that tone of the the seedy underbelly that sense of kind of peeling back the curtain we're going to have a lot of that like i say the sexual storylines and stuff like that the harassment it is more prominent here than any other preview chapter or most chapters in general but i think along those lines it is incredibly useful to us to finally look through the eyes of just a member of the populace this is probably something else I should save for in a moment, but I'll get through it now, because I'm sure you all already know by this point that in this chapter, Aya is Mercy. She's playing the role of someone else. She's wearing a face. And Mercy is a very, very different person to Aya. She's a member of the small folk. She's one of the masses in Bravos. Now, we talk about the small folk and these background characters, or however you want to term them. We talk about them so much. And while characters like Aya and others have taken on the same characteristics of the small folk at times when off the beaten track, uh, Tyrion in Dan, is a great example of George showing us the much more common experience in this world for, for that it was slavery for this time it's the plight of women in cities or small folk in cities it's, it's rare for us as readers still even though we have seen it it's definitely rare most of our characters most of our POVs are nobility are highborn are in at least good situations to start off with yes we have seen the plight of young women being taken advantage of and, and things of that nature we've seen it plenty of times but not through our actual POV's eyes not often anyway but now in this chapter we're actually going to live it we're going to experience it for real so I just think that's really valuable as an experience for appreciating that side of things and understanding what goes on beneath these majestic plots of crowns and wars and the such again we are made aware of it throughout but it's just much more explicit in this chapter we're actually living through it and george isn't going to pull any punches either in this chapter we will see how the world truly works for certain people even in a much more sophisticated much more liked place 
like Bravos that hasn't experienced revolt or famine or isn't in a war zone. So yeah, I just think valuable is the word. It's really, really good that George is taking the opportunity to get that across just to see what it is like for someone such as Mercy. What she has to put up in terms of her workplace and in terms of walking down the road and the dangers that come with every single day or what she would need to do to progress in her career or even just keep herself safe. And I don't think I need to point out the very, very obvious connections or comparisons we have to our real, actual world and how so many people will experience the same thing as Mercy does in this chapter. Again, we will come back to that in a second. Let me cover just one more thing before we get going. Another reason why this is so appreciated that we get this chapter and why we're going to sink our teeth on it is because it does hit on such long-awaited themes. You don't need me to tell you about Aya's link to justice or revenge or vengeance. And in this one, as I said, we get it. We get it absolutely. We have even more deliverance than we have before. And we've gotten a fair bit in Aya chapters, let's not forget. But this is something else. And we're hungry for it. We jump on it. Even while we, we close our eyes to the harmful reality, Aya herself does some dark, shady things in this chapter. And yet for many of us, we do look the other way because ultimately it is what we want. In comparison, we've had brushes with Westeros and the former life several times before. Uh, she met Sam and she met Darian, but they were always one degree away. Like There was nothing that personal to Aya that had snuck through, nothing recent enough for her to change because that's the other thing that we want. We don't want just justice and vengeance. We also want Aya to stay Aya or become Aya again or just look back towards Westeros. That was one of the biggest discussion points for both her feast and dance chapters. We are desperate for that and again maybe we get it in this chapter. We'll see as we go because the difference from a Sam or a Darian is that now she gets something right out of her former life. She does get that hook that we've all been waiting for. She is dragged back. She does something about it. She breaks out of character. She breaks out of what she's supposed to be doing and she doesn't even think about it really. You'll see when we get there. It's never really a question. It's just natural reaction. We've said all the way through that she is still Arya Stark. We know that. And as if we needed any more proof, which we don't, well, Mercy provides it for us. But is that good for her? Do we want her to go down that path of vengeance and retribution and all these things? Because remember, George's big message is that you shouldn't. It's not good for you. Remember the book A Feast for Crows? That was basically what it said. But we still cheer for it. We're the hearts in conflict, really. George always says he likes these characters in conflict. I think he likes his readers in it just as much because we've got this conundrum. Do we want to see Aya go down that path and kill these evil people? Yeah, we absolutely do because we hate those people and Aya's really good at killing them and she deserves to do it. But then we also have to think, okay, but she's still a child. And even if she wasn't a child, is this good for her? No, it's not. Of course it's not. We want her to be happy and to heal if she possibly can and all these other things. But we want the other thing as well. And this is why it makes such a very, very good chapter that I've probably delayed you from actually getting to for far too long. I think, well, I know I'm going to repeat myself a bunch of times because this is such a good chapter, because there is so much to talk about and because I love talking about Aya. So forgive me, everything I've just said, I'm probably going to say again in the chapter anyway, but let's find out together. Let's get to it. Although one more thing, actually, before we go. Yeah, I know you thought you were there. As we do every week, let's have a look at the statistics. This chapter, Mercy, comes in at 6,037 words, which is a shade longer than Ariane 2 last week. The last few we've covered actually have all been so much longer than the early chapters when we started going through the previews. Aya's average in Feast was 6,200. It was 5,600 in Dance. So this is almost dead middle and is actually Aya's longest chapter since Feast, which I find pretty surprising. I would have guessed her Dance chapters were pretty long, but obviously not. Perhaps because those Feast ones do have those extra long paragraphs of Bravos description at times from George, which I wasn't always 100% infused with, but in fairness, that 
that was a much more feast issue than a dance one. Now I don't think I need to remind you too much of where Ira is, what's been happening to her lately. You know she's been in the House of Black and White, you know she's been on this training program, and I'm sure most of you remember that she pulled off her plan last time she did the old poison coin trick, you know, that old chestnut. And much more importantly, she discovered the big secret of the faceless men, she actually saw the faces being made, she put one on herself, we actually experienced real, creepy, true, actual magic, possibly the most real magic we've ever seen, and, well, we all pretty much enjoyed it, didn't we? Let's get to the chapter, let's go for Mercy. And I think, to be honest, we can kind of skip over why this chapter is called Mercy. I think you know why. I think you can see why it relates to Aya so much. And it's going to come up anyway. So instead, we'll blow right past that. So then, today's opening line. She woke with a gasp, not knowing who she was or where. Now, this is a bit more like it for opening lines. The last few that we've had from Ariane, they've been pretty gentle in comparison to what we normally expect. And we could probably throw Elaine in there as well. But this time around, we start off with an initial burst of tension. Someone wakes with a gasp. That's instant drama. We want to know why. We want to know if there's danger of it. We want to know what's about to happen. And that's fitting, really, given how fast our hearts really did beat in the last Aya chapter back in Dance, that George should choose to continue that straight away for us here. And the rest of the line has a meta element about it as well. This person does not know who or where she is. For a first time reader, neither do we. We aren't told at the end of Dance Remember that Aya will be Mercy next time round. Obviously, seeing as this is a preview chapter, the grand majority of the fandom the readers will know now, but if we're to take it as a pure reading experience, which is what we're going to do, then many won't. Now, we could work out of the female POVs with chapter titles, well, there have only been four so far. Asher, Aya, Sansa, and Ariane. Well, we've seen Sansa already. We know her title is Elaine. It could change, but we've seen no evidence of such. Ariane, we've also seen, and she doesn't have any chapter titles and wins. And Mercy as a theme doesn't really fit into her arc at this point. Asha has not had a chapter yet, and while Mercy might play into her brother's arc, it's very light within her own. Yeah, you could make the argument, but we don't really see it. Whereas Aya has had three different chapter titles already, and Mercy absolutely does fit into her thematics completely so. We discussed the gift of Mercy back in Storm with Sandor again. We discussed it even more with her time at the House of Black and White. So I'm thinking that most gamblers would definitely have put money on this being Aya from the very beginning. And the only confusion probably comes if you wonder about George expanding the range of characters who get chapter titles. If, say, Brienne and Cersei were introduced as title chapters in this book, well, you could maybe persuade yourself. Cersei has a lot more to do with Mercy in general, but especially with her upcoming trials. Brienne, on the other hand, she might not have it as much personally, but it's going to be a very hot topic as she and Jamie stand before Mother Merciless herself at the beginning of Winds. So you could make that argument, couldn't you? But that's kind of a tangent, you know what I'm like. Let's get back to the line itself. Remember, this doubles up in use for Aya specifically. Once we accept that it is Aya, then we can start thinking about how this merges with her theme. The whole point of Feast and Dance is the faceless men's, plus her own, efforts to make her forget her former identity and truly become no one. That's been one of the largest focuses of our Aya-based discussion in the middle two books of the series. So the not knowing who she is upon this waking absolutely slots in with that, doesn't it? We have to wonder from the very beginning, is that what she's talking about? Is she beginning to forget now that she's taken that huge, huge leap further into the cult of the faceless men at the end of Dance? Is this just a reminder that she is becoming no one? Well, we would guess no, given how much evidence we've already seen of Aya absolutely failing to forget herself. In fact, we have more evidence than she herself is even aware of by far. We have to wonder, we have to think on whether George is hitting on that theme straight away though. But there is another as well. If you again go back to dance, 
then we will recall the terrible, essentially magical nightmares and visions that Aya experienced by wearing someone else's face. She became them, in a way. So is that what we're seeing here on the opening line? Is she wearing another new face and experiencing their trauma or death and waking up confused over who she is? That confusion, the very existence of that question, is just so representative of her entire arc, isn't it? Even prior to the end of Storm, really. Seeing as these two possibilities are some of the most recent from Dance, it might be what our brains run into first, but George is tricking us. The actual cause of this initial confusion is something much more elemental to Aya, more intrinsic and original, and something we probably should have guessed at first, it is wolf dreams. Like the beginning of Aya's first dance chapter, The Blind Girl, George is hitting on Aya's dream slash semi-warging of Nymeria early on in the chapter. It's actually present in both chapters during dance, if you remember, and it also serves as a great reminder that Aya, incredibly impressively, has started to master warging as a skill in general. That was another huge revelation of just how far she'd gone. I went on quite a bit at the time about how cool that was, how she's even beating out some of her brothers, the ones who actually have their dives with them for the most part, whereas she is thousands of miles away. It all makes for very, very interesting stuff. We went on about that quite a bit. I won't go into it now, but it definitely fascinates me. That's probably the Aya thing I'm most interested in out of all the many different Aya things. But even leaving that skill and what she can use it for aside for now, it also links into the theme of identity again. All the way through both Feast and Dance, we've seen the evidence. Even if Aya truly wanted to, which is more than debatable, even if she could actually sever her emotional ties to Westeros and the Stark family and the lessons of Ned and the memories of her siblings... Yeah, it sounds stupid even saying it hypothetically, doesn't it? Because we know it's not going to happen. But even if that were all true, it would still be impossible to become no one and leave that life behind because she has this mystical power that will not leave her even if she did want it to. There is no leaving the Stark blood or the Stark ancestry or the emotional connection to Nymeria or whatever it might be behind. It's not happening. And of course, it's also just a hell of an opening to get us interested in this chapter straight away, as if we needed any assistance. But if you are like me, if you do find the Nymeria slash warging angle the most interesting about Aya, then you're all in, which I certainly am. Even beyond the fact that Aya has increased her own warging skill and is actively using it in her assignments, something she's managed to keep secret from the faceless men, remember, we always want to know more about this connection. We want to see if it's getting stronger. We want to see if this is the hook that will take Aya home. Or if she'll just simply become more aware of what it is. That would be fine. We'd settle for that. Plus, we want to see Nymeria, don't we? It's not that like we get many opportunities. And as long as it's been since we truly discussed the Riverlands on page, we remember that Nymeria is a major player in whatever's going to happen there. Her and her horde of direwolves. Well, they're going to be used to something, aren't they? We've talked about it here on Scraps and Scrolls. I've talked about it on Radio Westeros as well. When I was lucky enough to come on and discuss the prologue or discuss Lady Stoneheart. There is definitely a very, very high possibility of them being involved in the Winds of Winter prologue. We might even be getting clues of that here. Clues that will obviously mean much more once we actually have read said prologue. But we could also gain more clues about what's going on in the Riverlands. We could even catch a glimpse of Lady Stoneheart, Catelyn herself. Imagine the emotional effect that would have on Aya, even if she did consider it a dream. That would matter, wouldn't it? That has us salivating for such possibilities. As it turns out, we'll get nothing so upfront this time round. George is just reminding us for now. He's setting the seed. He might be tying things together with the prologue or an early Jamie or Brienne chapter, but he's not being outright just yet, at least as far as we can tell. Still, we get the hints to keep up our hunger. Nymeria and her pack had been hot on the scent of blood and prey in Aya's dream, so the questions start ticking over in our mind. Is this just your normal nighttime feast, or is it something specific? Is it something we're going to know about? Are they hunting Freys again? Is this part of a larger attack? In terms of location, we're only told that they're running through some dark, pine forest which unfortunately isn't all that helpful because i did go back and check and there's pine trees all over the riverlands multiple characters see them everywhere so that doesn't really help us out 
What I will say though is that the smell of pine needles, the smell of pine trees, that is one of the things that Aya smells. If you remember, she was told to sniff those specific candles back in Feast, and the answer was something to do with something intrinsically Aya. She smelled Winterfell, she smelled snow and smoke and pine needles. Now, okay, those might be the pines from the north, but they might be the Riverlands as well. So is that important? Is it not? Hmm, maybe, but it's worth pointing out. Lower down the first page, Aya expands just a tad. The howling in the dream has lasted in her heart. She's feeling the lingering effects of the dreams longer and longer, which is cool. So it, it seems like the link is still becoming stronger. We obviously adore to hear that. And the memory of the dream isn't sharp, but she remembers blood. Okay, so now we have the same question of a hunt. We know there's violence involved somewhere. Is that human blood? Is it animal blood? We don't know. There's a full moon. That doesn't say much to us here on its own, but when combined with the rest of the book, maybe it will tell us something important on timing, similar to how Bran's dance chapters told us about the passage of time via the moon references. And most interestingly of all, there was a tree that watched her as she ran. Aha, okay, yes, that's very interesting. A weirwood, we would guess. Again, combined with a prologue or another chapter, we might even be able to tell exactly where this is happening. But even without that, I did have a look quickly to see if pine needles and weirwood trees were mentioned anywhere specifically. Doesn't really look like it. The only time that really comes up with Riverlands characters is actually when Brienne's not even in the Riverlands, she's in the Crownlands up at the Whispers. I'm going to guess that's not where Nymeria and her pack are, so we're still clueless there, but it's always worth having a check, isn't it? But even without that knowledge, the weirwood is another northern symbol for Aya to see in her dream state, and therefore it will linger in her subconscious. It's another anchor to bring her back to Aya instead of no one. And that's even if she's talking in general terms about face watching her. What if she's being more literal? What if Bran is watching out of the weirwood at this time? What if he sees Nymeria alive and well? He might recognise him, mightn't he? Does he seek her out in that case? Does he try to communicate with her? And therefore Aya? I mean, it's possible, and it's definitely exciting. Imagine that. Perhaps he merely witnesses the carnage that Nymeria does to whoever prey is. That would link into another common theme, Aya admitting what she's become to her family. She's had that worry before, remember, and it will come again as the reality comes ever closer. So I mean, that alone, just the possibility of a link between Bran and Aya in some small way, that's enough to get our brains whirring, isn't it? So I think that's a definite marker that George wants to put down in the ground to kick off Aya's wind's arc. Don't forget the direwolves, they are important, which I fully support. And maybe it's a hint of what we're going to see later in the chapter, in terms of merging back to the Westerosi world and Aya's past, that'll come in a little bit. Tempting as it is just to chat Nymeria and direwolves for the full episode, I would love that. We're still actually only on the first page somehow. And though the word Aya hasn't appeared yet, I think a first time reader would have made up their mind by now, with the wolf dreams, that this is Aya. So we'll say, Aya, she truly wakes up, and as she does so, she scrapes a hand across her scalp and feels stubble. Her hair is gone, she's shaved, or she's been shaved. Of course, what we have to ask first, because of that last chapter in Dance, is whether this is Aya's hair that's gone, or is she just wearing a new face? Does the face magic extend to hair to the point you can be bold, even while actually still having your own hair? We don't know still, remember, we can guess, but the real rules are a complete mystery to us still. And who's to say she is wearing a new face? We were told she would have a new one at the very end of her last dance chapter, but that doesn't necessarily mean she'll be wearing it 100% of the time. Probably she will if she's on the job, but again, nothing is clear to us at this point just yet. Let's ignore the question and point to the fact that Aya, either in reality or through magic, doesn't have any hair right now. The loss or change of hair has been an important vehicle for changes in identity or station or circumstance for several characters. Jamie's was fairly low-key, 
he was shaved and he grew his beard then he smartened up again he's gone through a few changes Daenerys has had it happen to her twice now via fire she's lost her hair completely Sansa has dyed her hair to hide her identity and perhaps most famously Cersei has recently been shorn and had her entire self-image completely adjusted because of it we could even go historic couldn't we and revisit how Egg hid his lineage with a shaved head maybe Varys is doing the same it's all over the place isn't it in fairness hair changing is actually nothing new to Arya her hair was cut for her as soon as Ned fell in King's Landing by Yoren. But that only goes to prove my point, I feel, how her hair was used to mask her identity when she was supposed to be Ari. And her hair is obviously not as important to her as it is to some other characters, but being completely bold or near enough is pretty different from what she had before. So it'd be interesting to see if this does have an effect on her feelings about self-identity. Although, to be honest, most readers will probably skip past that detail as we head for a much more attention-grabbing sentence that confirms the meaning of the chapter title. It tells us that Aya is playing a part and it really opens our eyes. It is this. I need to shave before Zimbaro sees. Mercy. I'm Mercy. And tonight, I'll be raped and murdered. Yeah, it changes the mood slightly, doesn't it? Remember, we were not told in dance that this apprenticeship of Aya's would be with the mummers. We don't know just yet that that is what Aya is doing. We know she's taking on a new role for the Faceless Men. We didn't know it would include a literal role on stage as well. The idea of which is actually pretty humorous from George, I think, making the actor be an actor. That's an incredibly clever idea to make us and Aya look at her arc in a very different way. But those thoughts will probably save for a little bit later, especially if this is a first-time reading experience. Most of us are probably still focusing on the end of that quote, on that rape and murder line. Aya is saying she'll be raped and murdered. Now, we obviously assume that I has no intention of letting this go ahead, we're definitely hoping so. We start guessing that maybe it's part of a sting or a trap to ensnare whoever her next target is perhaps. Maybe she knows that her rape and murder are planned and has her own plan to counteract it. Making a plan of her own was a big part of her last assignment after all. Either way, it's a pretty bold line. It's one that does stop you in your tracks. Unfortunately, rape and murder are not exactly strangers to we readers of this series, even just in terms of Aya's arc. But seeing Aya come face to face with the potential of it happening to her, and her handling it so matter-of-factly, it leaves a very bitter aftertaste, uh, an unpleasant aftertaste to be sure. We spoke about it earlier on, but this is an incredibly difficult chapter to read in many ways, and a big part of that is the, well it's not trivialization of rape, I don't think that's the right word, but again, it's, it's just how matter-of-fact she is about it, it's just there it's a part of her life it's just included as a thing that happens which it, it does of course but it's not given its true emotional weight it's not recognized as this unspeakable crime that it is that we should be crying out against it and, and specifically Aya, this young child should be horrified by the idea but she's not it's just again part of whatever she's up to and we're skipping ahead a little bit here but it's treated in the play as just a plot point again a thing that happens and young Aya slash mercy is just expected to deal with it participate with it up to a point and again well that bad taste returns you, you know what i'm saying even leaving behind the discussion of its use in the play we can probably return to that later there's just that feeling that things of this nature shouldn't even be present in Aya's mind yet she's too young she's only a child the reality of course is that she's well aware of that side of things i mean she's lived in a war zone let's not forget and innocence in general for her is a long ago memory considering her own violent acts plus those that she's been witness to but rape and sexual assault are a different category obviously and just because she's been unfortunate enough to be made aware of it far too young doesn't mean she should now just have it piled on top of her as if no more harm could be done because okay she's aware of it so why not no no, no that's not how it works that simply isn't true we already have so much to worry about in terms of Aya's development and trauma. We don't need more added, do we? And definitely not anything of this sort. 
This is going to be a major part of this chapter's construction, however, Aya's sexualization by the world around her. She's going to experience things that she hasn't before, in part because of this new face that she wears. And yes, we do have further, very complicated questions on whether that magic also changes your entire body, etc, etc, but in part it's also because she is starting to grow up. Her experiences in this Mercy chapter will be much closer to things that Sansa has experienced in the past, and is still experiencing now of course. Aya, being so young, has been mostly separate from that world, not all the time, but mostly, thankfully. Now, well, those barriers are going to start thinning. She will at least know enough of it to take advantage, which is clever in its way, but again, it is very, very uncomfortable in other ways. There's yet another complexity to add to our hearts when thinking about Aya. Yeah, we do want her to take advantage and use her powers as she will later on in the chapter. But then again, we also don't want her to be exposed to too much, and we obviously, obviously don't want any of it to backfire and for her to find herself in actual danger. We don't, we're not even going to imagine, we're not going down that lane. This is something else we will be revisiting though as we make our way through the chapter, because as I say, it is one of the defining characteristics of Mercy as a chapter. Okay, as we return to the text now, and again, we're still on the first page, mind you, we get another reminder of the casualness, the ice of which I is dealing with these subjects. We have another quote here. The air had grown chilly, and a good thing, else she might have slept all day. It would be just like Mercy to sleep through her own rape. It just sticks out, most definitely. It just, it's there, and you have to notice it, and it, it's not nice. Aya, as Mercy, now gets up and shows us that she is somewhere in the centre of the city, supposedly. Definitely somewhere different anyway. She has her own room. She even references it as her building. We are absolutely not in the House of Black and White anymore. And that makes sense. We've accepted the fact that she's playing a part by now. But we want to know what the part is. We want to know where she is and what's going on in general. George is in no rush to tell us. All he wants to make clear for now is that Aya is fully bought in to either stepping into a well-established character or has drawn one up for herself as she tells us about Mercy's characteristics. She's a happy soul, she's a hard worker. Okay, no, she's not that great at timekeeping, but the point is, this is a, a whole 3D person, a fully drawn out character. This will be another skill that Aya has grown and is basically perfecting by now, the invention, the creation of a human character, a real person. Then we are thrown an unexpected bone to take our interest when we're told that later that day, an envoy from Westeros would be visiting the gate which we assume Isambara to own and Aya slash Mercy to work in. In what capacity, we still don't know, but that's not what we're focusing on from this line. Someone from Westeros is coming. Now, thanks to having been through the dance epilogue, we all know this to be Harris Swift, coming to beg for some money on the Iron Throne's behalf. Whether a first-time reader would be able to figure that out on the fly is kind of hard to tell, but it's almost irrelevant. The point is that someone of importance from Westeros is coming, and we love any Westeros connection that Aya can get her hands on, just like we did with Sam and Darian, because it might be the key to getting her back home, or revisiting her past life, or just setting off a certain spark within her, in the same way we get excited about Nymeria dreams. Anything that can light that fire, we're all for. Now beforehand, they were meetings by chance, remember, with Sam and Darian. Now it's going to be part of her job to interact with them in some way, we're guessing. For all we know, this Westerosi might be her target if she does indeed have a target. That's perfectly possible. Or, more worryingly, they might have something to do with this rape and murder that Aya is so sure about. So the chapter is slowly taking on a more solid form, and we're most definitely wanting to read on to find out more. To find out about this Westerosi and the connection to Aya, if nothing else. Or if it does turn out to be someone that she knows well. Our mind is whirring, George has it set up. This is part of why this is such a brilliantly written chapter. As everyone agrees, I'm sure. To this point, we were maybe thinking that Aya could be serving in a tavern. We might have even wondered if she was filling the role of a sex worker for this mission, which honestly might have been too much to handle if George had chosen to write certain scenes explicitly, let's say. 
Sex workers in Braavos are well established, Ira spent a lot of time among them before, and we were told that Mercy would be pretty, so that would all make sense. But luckily a new clue comes pretty quickly when we're told that Ira has a shaved head to make the wigs fit better. Now that note doesn't necessarily exclude the possibility of her playing a sex worker, but it does make us think of mummers much more quickly. And that begins to make a few other things link up as well. It's actually confirmed for us fairly quickly as we progress now and hear about wardrobe mistresses before being literally told outright that Isambaro at the least owns the costumes and deals with mummers. So that should provide some relief from that original line of murder and rape. Perhaps that is still real, but there's also a super strong chance that it's actually in reference to something happening in a play. It doesn't completely make it just okay and easy to read now, but it's better than before. And along with that, we suspect that maybe this envoy is coming along to watch a performance. So is the role of Mercy just created to get close to him, perhaps? Possibly. We're not put completely at ease, however. While Aya thinks about how Isambaro does not allow his costumes to be worn out in the streets, she also tells us that such a thing is possible if you're willing to perform sexual acts on Isambaro. Thankfully, truly thankfully, George chose not to take us down a particularly dark path of this. Aya slash Mercy is not going to get involved in such, partly because she doesn't want to, partly because she's been told it's a very slippery slope, where the lines between mama and sex worker can be rapidly blurred, and we can imagine how true that is. Again, it's not like this kind of thing is any great discovery for Aya. She has spent a lot of time around the sex workers, etc, etc, but now it's just that much more up close to her. It's just that little bit more real. The character of Mercy continues to form as Aya gives us a physical rundown of what she's wearing, but she provides separation. She reminds us how there are two different people we're dealing with here. We see this via the mummer's cloak that she wears, the one with secret pockets, because someone like Aya can get a lot of use out of secret pockets, as she demonstrates for us here. Some coins are in one pocket, okay, where we know how capable she is with a few coins, let's not forget. Another holds an iron key. Hmm, iron key, what could that be for? We're getting alchemist vibes almost, aren't we? And finally, one holds a real blade, not the fake fruit knife that everyone else wears. Although to be fair, considering what we've already heard in this chapter, I wouldn't be surprised if a few more female mummers didn't also have some real blades hidden somewhere beneath their own cloaks. I'm going to guess that none of them are as dangerous of one as I might be, but still. Does Aya carry that for mere protection, or does this blade have a purpose in mind? We're going to find out, luckily. She continues the separation as she tells us more about Mercy, the person. Mercy was made for eating fruit, apparently. That's a pretty funny phrase. I wonder if she is basing her on Sansa and her lemon cakes at all. If she is, indeed, by Aya's design, of course. It could just be that Aya is filling the role of an actual person. Very possible. Anyway, Mercy is pretty happy-go-lucky. She laughs, she jokes, she's obedient. She's not Aya, is the point, but Aya is confident that she can play the part. She's already put it to use to get a cheaper room, which fits this idea of Aya having to grow up. It's not really her, and she's proved herself more than self-sufficient in much harder circumstances than this, but still, she's renting her own room. It is a marker. Next comes an extended paragraph of description on the city that might well be George's largest love. They appear in every Aya chapter, don't they? A little too much in the beginning of her Bravos arc for my money, but he's got much better at the ratio in my opinion. And out of this paragraph, I want to select two specific sentences. The first is this. She was not far from the gate, as the crow flies, but for girls with feet instead of wings, the way was longer. I doubt this sentence is really of note, but things like this that compare Aya or any other Stark child and imagine them with the capabilities of an animal, well how can you not start thinking about walking? Aya has made massive strides in that arena lately, huge ones, so who's to say she can't do so again, or that we won't get to see it in this chapter maybe? I would definitely be hoping for that, I'm sure you would be too. Next is this, Ravos was a crooked city, the streets were crooked, the alleys were crookeder, and the canals were crookedest of all. I select this one more than anything, I just think it's a clear marker that George was having a whale of a time writing this chapter. I think he was in uber high spirits. 
You have to be to include the words crookeder or crookedest. I can almost hear his laughter while reading it, which is just quite a nice idea really, isn't it? Our view of Bravos becomes clearer as Aya tells us about her usual route through the Ragman's Road and along the Outer Harbour. Some of these things we've seen before, but the picture is more defined for us now. She says she can see the arsenal, that fortified shipyard right out on the edge of Bravos, right at the entrance that we were introduced to when she first arrived. Yeah, we'd definitely like to learn more about that, wouldn't we? I hope we're going to see that in action at some point because it sounds pretty cool. She also tells us that when she goes that way, she's catcalled or wolf whistled or whatever you want to call it. She doesn't even need to understand the words to know the message. And that links to what we said earlier about the discovery of sexualization or objectification. She's not as much of a stranger to those things as she should be at her age anyway, but definitely less so now. She tells us of the bridge of eyes full of carved stone faces. Hmm, faces and eyes. And we know that motif quite well, don't we? Bran has always been most associated with it, but so has all of House Stark. Ariane even found similar in some caves last week, you'll remember. It makes you wonder if that way of thinking made its way over here maybe at some point. Every other religion is represented in this city after all. I did actually see this bridge as well when she first arrived in Bravos, but she obviously didn't know the name then. So this is another nice little line in the sand of her time here. It's strange to think that this is going to be her third book in Bravos after the amazing amount of places she visited in the original three. We hear about the Hall of Truth, we see the many masts on the Purple Harbour, the rotating thunderbolt on the Sea Lord's Palace, I think that's new to us and it's pretty damn cool. You can even peek the mighty Titan himself, all from this one bridge, so maybe the eyes are just signifying that and nothing else. Though, as it turns out, despite the initial interest we get from hearing about such places, it's immaterial, because I isn't taking that route today anyway, it's far too foggy to see anything of interest, so she's going the direct way instead. The fog that she walks out into is certainly more than a little atmospheric. I believe it must be intentional that George just spent a page pointing out what a visual delight this city can be, only to rob us completely of that fact. Aya thinks the fog is thicker than she's ever seen it. She can hardly see a thing, though she does hear a cat, just to remind us of that walking power again and the importance of cat in her past chapters. She might need that eyesight soon enough considering how bad it is here, but she's also more than aware. She might like this city, but she's not an idiot. It's dangerous. Now, with the weather providing ultimate cover, anyone could be a killer, including her, of course. Do we think this weather could be symbolic of the confusion in Aya's own morals and her own choices at the moment? Is it representative of the world she steps ever further into? Or is that a bit too on the nose for our liking? You tell me. The danger isn't relegated to murderers. Boats can crash in the canals, people can slip on the cobbles. Even with the fog blinding her, Aya insists on telling us more about the city as she travels deeper into narrower streets, over smaller canals, and to buildings growing ever closer and closer. Everything feels very cloistered and kind of like the walls are closing in at the moment. She even tells us about other plays and stories that concern the Sea Lord of Bravos and his apparently jovial nature because George just can't resist world building here. Finally though we do come upon our destination or Mercy's destination perhaps. The Gate. Nestled between two harbours built upon a burnt down warehouse which I think actually might be a storyline from the Republic of Thieves and the Gentleman Bastard sequence. I don't know, I'd have to remind myself. Either way, this is a busy place for all who visited the harbours, thanks to its said location, even if damp and shifting foundations are constant enemies for Isambaro to war against. It's classic George, really. Nothing shall be mentioned unless it is also drawn out in full dimensions. Everything's got to have a backstory. Classic George. When Aya arrives, someone named Big Brusco, who's apparently not a relative of the other Brusco that Aya used to work for, is painting a sign above the gate door to tell of the latest show. It is named The Bloody Hand, 
and Brusco is even painting a red hand next to it just to be helpful. Now we actually get our first dialogue of the chapter. Yeah, I know, I've had to wait for it. And that is Mercy being complimentary of Brusco's efforts, which he doesn't seem too bothered about. Instead, he tells her that Isambara has been looking for her, except he refers to him as King of the Mummers. And I fills us in on the backstory behind that name. This Isambaro is an egotistical man, that's clear from the start. The name apparently started out simple enough. It was just a playful act in the semi-war between rival mummer companies, but he's now brought into it as he will only accept kingly roles or kingly plays full stop. He sees himself as a king. So I suppose George is telling us that the draw of power and ambition cuts right through society, not just by people with castles or in actual wars. I wonder if we're being told this because I was going to use it to advantage at some point later on. You could definitely see that happening, couldn't you? Probably more interesting to us is the name of this play. The idea of A Hand of the King is a Westerosi idea, but that doesn't mean a play about it can't make it over to Bravos. It might even make it more likely, really. And though we've known several, a few of whom could be described as bloody, especially if we open it up to history, we might have a feeling of who this is going to be about right from the beginning, because simply, we expect George at this point to provide Aya with whatever could affect her most. And what could affect her most? A play about her father, about the offence of a Game of Thrones, essentially. Events that concerned her, most definitely concerned her sister, and obviously Ned himself. It would feature other characters she'd met and knew. It would detail how her house and her family broke apart. It would focus on this ultimate thing that happened to her that changed her entire life. The start of our very story, really. Aya sets our minds even further in that direction when she tells us that the play involves two kings, a fat one and a boy one. Hmm... That might not have been enough for confirmation, except for the fact that the fat one dies from wounds given to him by a boar. So now we know. That's exactly what we're going to be dealing with. A play within a play. A staged version of events that we have witnessed ourselves, because George is again having his fun with us. Because it's the ultra-meta moment, isn't it? It's a superb way to make us focus on those ancient storylines as we head towards the final act, and we know George does quite like pointing back to the beginning as we go further here. And it's also a great way to double down on the idea of rumour and incorrect information. Lately, we've been talking about that in terms of Daenerys, but it's alive everywhere. It happens all across the board, of course. Even the inconsequential inclusion of Robert having a fine final speech are enough to start to annoy us, though, and we're far from the worst of it. We already know this is going to be bad in terms of Eddard Stark. It's easy to forget what the public story of all that is, what most people believe, mostly because Westeros has actually had time to figure out how rubbish all that was, and how rubbish what they were actually left with was as well, but that fact might not have made it across the narrow sea yet. And of course, most of all, we're worried about Aya, the effect this will have on Aya. How might this upset her to see her father's name slandered on stage like this? How might it hurt her? Or will it go the other way? Will this be that spark we were talking about earlier, the one that will send her back? Will this be the other injustice to fight to go and clear her name or just get vengeance on people who have spread this tale? Could be and we wouldn't turn it down, would we? Unfortunately, though, the reaction we probably don't want is the one we actually get, which is to say nothing at all. Aya doesn't give any thoughts on this whatsoever. Surely she already realises what it's about, though. Do we really have to ask the question of does she truly not care anymore? That's disconcerting, isn't it? Maybe she's just too deep in the role. Well, we don't like that much either because we like Aya being there under the surface. Or perhaps she's already got upset and moved past it. It's possible. She's obviously aware beforehand of what this play is. And one more note for you. This play was written by Fario Pharrell. Yes, Pharrell. So surely that name will get a rise out of Aya, the name of her old hero and master. Unless maybe it's just a super common name here. That's possible too. But no, nothing. We don't like that either, do we? We don't like any signs of Aya losing what makes her, her. I mean, that, again, is the war we've been fighting since she got here. And again, maybe she already dealt with that name earlier, but it stands out to us. We want to see the reaction. 
Aya joins the rest of her troop now, where they are gathered listening to the boss man, who confirms that that envoy we were talking about is indeed coming tonight, and as a guest of honour it would seem. So our idea of this envoy being the target, if Aya does have one, is still alive. That might be how Aya is going to get to him, for we know. Maybe she had to wait for him to come out into the open, or whatever it might be. She lists several of the new characters here, while Isambaru is bleating on about him being a monarch on the same strata as Tommen. But she picks out one new character in particular, Babono, a dwarf. Yes, if we think that Ned will be painted poorly in this play, just imagine how Tyrion is going to be presented. And Babono doesn't exactly endear himself when he smacks his lips and asks Aya slash Mercy if she is ready for her rape, while pointing out that she's a little girl at the same time. <sighs> yeah, see, I told you it'd be uncomfortable and I was right. Yes, this does all but confirm that the rape is part of the play, which is good, I guess, but it also proves how it is still a weapon to make Aya and us feel horrible. She's being sexualized. She's being verbally abused. The whole thing is so creepy. Isambaro, meanwhile, is still trying to rally his crew as he speaks of other important guests. Courtesans and key holders. That's an interesting term. I'd like to know more about that. Have we heard it before? I don't remember, but yeah, we maybe have. Why are they called key holders? Hmm. This Westerosia envoy is an event unto himself. He'll be bringing out all the glitz and gamma. So Ego Man wants to make the most of the opportunity and impress them all, as you would. You can almost taste it here, can't you? George is obviously setting himself up for more world-building opportunity, as though he needs the setup, he can do it whenever he wants. Uh, for example, we hear about the Wrath of the Dragon Lords, which was Farrier Pharrell's first play. Yeah, see, he just wants to give background to everything, and we can hardly say no, can't we, because we love it. But much more importantly, we're getting a sense of the moment, aren't we? We know where the chapter is going now. It's been built up by Isambaro, we're interested to see the Westerosian Void and the connection that might have to Aya, whether she does have that target to kill, she might not still, and there is the standard build-up and excitement for performance in general, one that is coming in a mere hour apparently by the time Isambaro's speech is up, so the flow is in full force now and we're all getting caught up in it, all that tension, expectation, it's working for us. And it's a hive of activity to get ready for the tip-off, if I might stick to my sports analogies more than the performance ones, and we're shown that by Mercy apparently being the general assistant, the one that everyone dumps their problems onto, the one who has a thousand responsibilities that are all expected to be her sole priority. She's someone who basically keeps the ship afloat even if she gets no thanks for it. And this is interesting because we didn't know that Mercy also fulfilled this role within the team as well as her own part actually on stage. It provides superb access to all the moving parts of a production and to all the people within. For someone like Aya, it means she can gather copious amounts of information on said people. Or if she is in the midst of operating another plan like she did with the coin man, then she has superb access to implement that in any part of this play or this playhouse or whatever it might be. And maybe, best of all, it completely lowers suspicion. Those people who do all the work and keep everything afloat are inevitably the ones who also get completely ignored. They become part of the scenery, no one cares. And maybe that's slightly less effective because Mercy does actually have an onstage part as well, but you get my meaning. She has access, she can learn from all angles. And it's worth mentioning that we have to remember, while Aya might have a target and this envoy might mean something to her, there's also a purpose to her being here in terms of learning. She's skipped a few stages on the Faceless Man ladder, we've dis we know that and we've discussed their intentions for her before, but an expected and logical step on that ladder is learning some extra tips on the craft of acting and in mummery slash dressing up slash playing the part. It seems so small next to the magical ability to swap faces, doesn't it? But every little bit helps. And if you can achieve something by affecting an accent or putting on some makeup instead of wearing a dead human's face and reliving their death, then you probably would choose that option, wouldn't you? You need these skills. Anyway, we see Mercy plunge straight into the world of the gate now, as she's dragged in all directions. Dana, Mercy's apparent friend, wants help sewing Lady Stork's gown up. That's the first job. And yes, let me interject here, 
it's worth mentioning that in the show is Lady Crane, who is the actress in this play, who's played Cersei, and eventually befriends Aya after Aya's conscience disallows her to assassinate Lady Crane. So we have to ask, is Lady Stork going to play a similar role? Is Aya there to kill her? There's no evidence for it yet, but maybe that's true. Or is there something else we need to look for in terms of the name change from Stork to Crane? Or did the producers just think Stork was too close to Stark for the audience? Crane does sound a lot better, it must be said, so I agree with them there. But other than that, there's other jobs to get to. The stranger has lost his horn, and he also wants the bloody paste to fix it, just to squeeze a Jojen Reed reference in there. Isambaro has lost his crown, and Bobono needs help with his laces and fake cock. I had told us Mercy was a hard, resourceful worker, and it's true. The horn gets stuck back on the stranger's forehead. The crown is retrieved from the toilet because of course that's where Isambaro left it and Lady Stork gets the thread needed to repair her dress before she goes on stage as Cersei. And yes, we do pause there just for a breath to see if Aya will react at all to the thought of Cersei, the headliner upon her eternal list. But no, we get nothing and we remain very grumpy about that fact. And Mercy also does sort out Bobono and his laces, even with the deep suspicion that it is done on purpose so that she will have to touch him. Again, we were warned... Part of this chapter makes for difficult reading, and this passage is exactly that. We're treated to a description of this fake cock, the one that Mercy describes as hideous, and she appears to be right on the money. But Bono himself is no less hideous, as he continues to harass Mercy and try to get her to come back to his room. Mercy slash Aya takes no notice and tries to keep him on task. Apparently, this is a man who can get so drunk that he recites lines from an entirely different play, just to add on to his lecherousnessness. Lecherousnessness, that is a word, isn't it? I think so. In an expected, ironic twist, Bobono appears to be exactly what Tyrion was made out to be back in King's Landing, so we can hardly call this role taxing for him, can we? And in fact, actually, we get another play mentioned here, one of these ones that Bobono apparently reads lines from when he's not supposed to, The Merchant's Lusty Lady. Now, that might just be a completely random name that George made up, or I wonder, is that a reference to the Ness Hightower? She is now chief concubine to Trigar or Melon of Lys, he is a merchant. And this one isn't confirmed to be a plane by Fario Pharrell, but maybe all these writers just really like the Westerosi stories. That'd be quite funny if Sir Jorah's really heartfelt pain had been made into a play. I might just put that into my headcanon now, that the Merchant's Lusty Lady is indeed a play about the Ness Hightower and Jorah Mormont. But getting back to Bobono, unfortunately he has more creepiness to show just yet. George even lowers his voice to a sinister croak just to really set the tone for us. He makes Mercy tell him what play they are doing tonight, despite the fact that he is sober, he knows. And when she obliges him, it allows him to recant the role. He says this, My noble sire he made of purest gold, and gold he made my siblings, boy and girl. But I am formed of darker stuff, of bones and blood and clay, twisted into this rude shape you see before you. And that, in turn, gives him the excuse, in his mind, to act as a man made of this darker stuff, as he turns from creepiness to full-on assault by grabbing at Mercy's chest. Mercy slash Aya does not stand for it, which I suppose should rally our spirits, even though it's pretty hard to do that in this situation. She grabs and twists Bobono's nose, which I suppose you wouldn't actually be able to do with a real Tyrion. She friends that if he does it again, she'll get off that nose. His performance might be more authentic for it, but we're guessing he'd rather avoid that by the way he squeals. So likely some of the real Aya coming out there, and we do have the indication to cheer for her standing up for herself, or Mercy staff or whoever, but it still remains sickly and difficult to read, doesn't it? Aya getting groped. <laughs> we don't want to cover it we don't even want to think about it and it's even worse especially because Bobono he's not even fully abashed instead he claims he'll be able to take his evil delights on stage like he does with the other girl where there is truly no escape and people will cheer for him taking advantage yeah see a little too close to real world stuff here isn't it Aya has a response though she's not going to be intimidated if it's the audience response he wants she'll go one better by beating him on stage with his own fake cock and they will cheer all the louder even the boss will be impressed 
and that finally shuts him up. But I think we're all in agreement that so far, if anyone in this chapter is going to die, we're hoping for it to be Bobono. Yeah, fuck you, Bono. It's back to work now, though, as the hustle and bustle returns. Isambaro needs his spear. Big Brusco needs his boar suit, which I'd quite like to see, I'll admit. Then she has to check that the fake blades haven't been replaced by real ones, because apparently that's been done before, and someone died. You could even wonder if it was a former faceless man student. And she gets Lady Stork a glass of wine, because apparently Lady Stork is quite method. And all the while, there's been this chant of mercy, mercy, mercy. Which I think George keeps reminding us of, because we normally hear those words chanted in a quite different tone when there is blood and blade involved. With her tasks finished, Aya is able to look out at the audience, and she finds that the place is packed. It's stretched to breaking point. The revels are in full swing. There's even a peddler, who I have to assume is cut me own throat dibbler, just for you Pratchett fans. While the tension of the chapter builds, still very much pointing to the expectation of seeing this play right now, Aya provides yet more world building as she looks out upon the faces. Some of which we know already, like Cosimo the Conjurer, who once taught sleight of hand to Aya when she was cat of the canals. And on his arm is Inya from the Happy Port, who once had an interaction with Samuel Tarly. And this is used to remind us that Mercy is a different entity entirely, because Aya might recognise them, but Mercy would not and they would not recognise Mercy. So Aya remains hidden in plain sight, which definitely gets us wondering what she might do with that ability. So many thousands of possibilities. The pit down on the floor level is full as Aya takes us through more names, as are the balconies up above. It's almost as if, with George so enamoured with this wonderfully created and detailed city, he now wants to box in all of its many strata into one place so that we can appreciate it all at once. The balconies are separated out to represent the different social levels. The colourful bravos have the highest, captains and merchants are at the first and third levels, and the second is full of private boxes for the richest patrons, complete with servants and with the best of views. Normally, this level is half-filled at best, but the sense of occasion grows all the larger, as we're told that this part of the playhouse is also full. It's standing room only. This is a big deal. We're witnessing something out of the ordinary and obviously very important. George knows how to build something up, as we know, and he's doing so here. And it all comes down to the Westerosi envoy, apparently. This is why they've come out in such droves. I wonder if this popularity should annoy us. It only means that more people will witness the much-expected lies about Ned and the others that the bloody hand will present. And I espies the really important people now as she looks out at the crowd. She names them for us, even though they're mostly strangers to us readers. She goes through the nobility of Bravos. She sees House Afaris, House Prestain, Tyrone, Prunellis. She sees the third sword and five keyholders, whatever that might mean. But we know they're important people. They're inferential people. They're people that matter. Will they be important to the story going forward? Perfectly possible. Yeah, sure. We still have theories that Daenerys or Tyrion or both might pass through this way. Or will they be yet important to Arya's arc? We still have to ask the question of whether she has a target on this day. Any of them would make for a prime one, wouldn't they? While looking through these important people and giving us yet more world building for Bravos, stuff that essentially doesn't even make sense to us really, we hit a new level of establishing what a big deal this is when Dana points out that up in the box named for the Sea Lord of Bravos is the Westerosi Envoy. As we already know, the Envoy is indeed Harris Swift. Which is actually quite funny when you think all this fuss is actually being made for Harris Swift of all people. But the name, or the face in fact, means nothing to Aya. Even if that name and his biography was laid out in front of her, he still wouldn't mean that much other than his rather loose connection to her most hated Lannisters. In her mercy state, he means even less. There is apparent grandose in terms of his clothes, or the fact that the black pearl was on his arm, or the guards that accompany him, definitely offsets the actual state of affairs for himself or back at King's Landing. Clearly, Harris is also playing a role here in Bravos, one that might allow him some chance of success to return home, having achieved his mission of delaying the Iron Bank. 
The fact that the man who sent him out on this mission, in fact both of the two parts of his little alliance on the small council, are now dead is of course unknown to him at this point. Aya focuses on the Black Pearl first, but for us it's the guards who take our attention. This is the opportunity, if you are a super super eagle-eyed first time reader, to start making connections and start uncovering some mysteries. Let's take a step back from what Aya knows, let's talk about what we know. Thanks to that dance epilogue, we know that Harris Swift was worried about his safety which was a good call considering what happened to his companions, especially if he had to cross the narrow sea and go begging in the banks of the free cities. As it happened, Kevin Lannister had a small contingent of men recently arrived in King's Landing after coming to the capital with Red Ronick Connington. It was a group of men he wasn't really sure what to do with, so he suggested that Harris take some of them as his guard. How convenient. We didn't know at the time, nor do we know yet if Harris did so, but if he did, then we can start working our way back, can't we? Because those guards, potentially anyway, came from the contingent that not only came with Red Ronnet to King's Landing, but they were also at Maidenpool. They were sent on the mission to escort Sir Desmond Grell and Sir Robin Ryger of Riverrun to Maidenpool so that they could journey onto the wall. And we have to hope those two are okay because we do love them. They were sent on that mission by Jamie Lannister back in Feast, who also didn't want them hanging around with his bunch because he had found these guards upon revisiting Harrenhal where they had been left there by their original master, Gregor Kagane. They were the Mountain's men. So boom, shoot, click, that's who we're talking about. Potentially, we still don't know, but that's who I might be looking at right now, a member of the Mountain's men. I had to get up close and personal to more than a few of those Mountain's men during her times in Clash. She witnessed the horror they strew across the Riverlands firsthand. And to some of them, she's already served justice, as we remember the tickler back at the inn. But others have been wandering around free ever since, never even knowing they had a place on a little girl's revenge list. So now we start grinning, don't we? Because we start making those connections in our minds. Now we get the big deal, and we're starting to put forward theories of why we have this chapter at all. We wondered if the Westerosi envoy was going to spark something in Aya, if he was going to hook her, or remind her, or point her towards home in some other way. No, it is not him, we start thinking now, but potentially still one of his guards. If it is someone that I recognises as a man of the mountain, if it is someone she remembers as literally being the most awful form of human life imaginable, well that will test the boundaries, won't it? How well can no one survive in her psyche if one of those is literally dropped into her lap, one of her list folk? And we'll admit it straight up, like we said earlier, this is what we want to see. George is giving us what we want here. Aya killed Darian because she couldn't let someone breaking the oaths of the Night's Watch pass her by. It wasn't what Ned would do. It wasn't what the Starks' house had ever done. She considered that a duty and she considered it justice. The list might be of her own making instead of something from her father or her house, but it occupies the same moral space. Some people on that list are there for near personal reasons, but some are there because of the evil they have visited on the others. And the biggest example of that are the Mountain's men. So this will test Aya's own sense of honour, duty and what is right. And in all fairness, it will touch on the duty of her family as well just not the one whose name she carries. Back when Aya killed the Tickler, that massive, huge event, I spoke about the idea that she was fulfilling the role of her Tully blood. The Riverlands had suffered under that man. Its people had suffered, and she avenged them best she could. Or even to put it in more general terms, Aya is a noblewoman. She's of a great house. Small folk, the ones the nobles are supposed to protect, and that's what they're supposed to be for, had suffered like we say suffered horribly, and much of that suffering is because of the houses and their games, that's the point of the series. So Aya, just a little bit, repaid some of that debt. She fulfilled some of that duty and she cut the bastard up. If she sees another of those creatures here and now, well will she feel the same way? She's not in the Riverlands anymore, that was a while back now. She claims not to even be Aya anymore, she's supposed to be Mercy. She's supposed to have a job to do, but is she going to get pulled back in? 
The answer we were hoping for is yes, and it's the one we most expect. We fully hope to wave through the complexity of the choice, but we're probably confident that this surprising opportunity will be irresistible, that we will see Aya emerge again from the depths of mercy. Maybe not up front. She might not focus on it in such an obvious way, but like with Darian, she'll get the job done. Because she is still in the Riverlands. We were told that at the beginning of the chapter of Nymeria. She is still Stark and Tully, and those horrors of the war have not left us or her. We don't need telling she's not no one. We've always known that, but this is another opportunity to show both us and her. It's an opportunity for vengeance, and let's all be honest. As much as George tries to teach us the lesson, we want to see these human stains suffer, and we'd love to see what Aya and her new skills have in store for them. Before it was all emotion, it was just her plunging that knife down again and again and again. This time we might get something a little bit more refined just to show off what she's been up to. With that, of course, comes worries of what if I breaks off more than she can chew? What if she comes into harm's way? And there's questions of how this is going to work with the faceless men as well. Last time she pulled this stunt, she lost her eyes. Only a few months earlier, it turned out, but still, she lost her eyes. What are they going to do this time? Will it distract her from an actual mission? Will she get kicked out, or worse? And will she be aware of that and go through with the murder anyway, before simply leaving, knowing she can't go back? It's interesting stuff, incredibly interesting stuff that we're now starving for. This is the very meat of the current Aya arc, and we might just be getting the hints of how it's going to be delivered. Oh, old George, he sure does know how to play us. Of course, none of that has occurred to Aya just yet. It's only us jumping in the gun so far. She's more interested in the Black Pearl, like we said, the courtesan who has accompanied Harris to the performance. Again, this is another someone that Aya has come across in real life, but Mercy has not. You might remember that the Pearl bought cockles from Aya during her time as Cat of the Canals, paying three times what they were worth as well. In fact, when the Kanye man was still deciding what Aya could be, he debated sending her to the Black Pearl to become a courtesan instead of a faceless man. The Pearl is as beautiful now as she was back then, and Dana helpfully fills in a bit of her family history here on how the Black Pearl is a title passed from mother to daughter, and how one of the previous was the mistress of Aegon the Unworthy, Aegon the Fourth. It's with this talk of dragons, we get this quote. I would like to see a dragon, Mercy said wistfully. Well, Mercy might not ever get the chance, but of course this kind of line always works wonderfully for us. Will Aya ever lay eyes on a dragon? We're betting that the answer is probably yes. Aya continues her superb acting by pretending she has no idea what a sigil is because Mercy would have no reason to. Dana is again helpful in filling in the gaps as they look upon Harris Swift and his particular sigil. And she even directs Aya's attention to the guards as evidence. All four of them are in crimson cloaks and lion clasps. And then Aya looks a little bit closer and we have this quote. When Mercy glanced at the faces beneath the gilded, lion-crested helm, her belly gave a quiver. The gods have given me a gift, she thought. Her fingers clutched hard at Dana's arm. So now our hairs are on end. We've had that moment of recognition. This is that moment. This is the realisation. This is that initial hook back to the former life and the world of Aya Stark, the one that's never really gone away. This would mean nothing to Mercy, but it's not really Mercy who's there, is it? And that fact is instantaneous as well. Like we said earlier, there's no argument or deliberation in Aya, which I think only goes to prove the point of how effective that hook is. What happens from this point on in the chapter is all a nature-based reaction. Aya does what she does because intrinsically, that's what she feels she needs to do. She doesn't give it any more thought than she does taking her next breath. This is just what she's supposed to be doing. This is her role. The initial recognition is so strong that it actually breaks her out of character just for a second. Nothing else in this chapter has been close to doing so, but this does as she finds herself singling out a particular guard to Dana. Dana is obviously surprised at this. She even asks if Mercy knows said guard, which is about as close as Aya ever comes to being rumbled. But she's too good at this, and she recovers immediately, pretending she finds this guard attractive and is just mooning over some foreign strangers. 
Dana disagrees, but she accepts the notion, which is the important part, of course. Though she does warn Mercy off. Not only is the man an ancient 30, a 30, but he's a Westerosi savage. That's a wider generalisation than you'd think, but it's actually pretty on the money this time. Well done, Dana. And if we've already read the ending of this chapter, then we know the dark recesses that Aya's mind is reaching at this point. Yeah, it's a giggle she puts on her face, because Mercy is a giggly girl. It keeps up her cover as a besotted young woman going after an attractive man, and it also provides a wonderful juxtaposition for us on the difference between what is in her heart and what's on her face. The giggly girl provides an excuse. Dana won't think anything of it, or raise it to anyone else. But I goes a step further by providing an actual excuse to her friend, should she need one. She's going to go off and practice her lines again before the big show. That's perfectly plausible. Any first time would want to do the same thing. So we see how talented Aya can be. She knows the details, she knows which cracks to fill, how to raise zero suspicion whatsoever, and how that part of the scenery role that we mentioned earlier allows her to find those cracks through which we can now slip. More importantly, we know she's obviously up to something. This is very much off script now. This is no part of the Faceless Man mission. This is not Mercy's role. Ira's up to something. She's obviously recognised him, even if we don't have confirmation of who it is yet, but we're dying to see what's going to happen next. So the wolf makes her approach, still dressed up in sheep's clothing which actually works pretty well for describing Aya as a whole now that I think about it. She is the wolf in sheep's clothing, isn't she? But either way, she goes unseen in the shadows as she approaches the two guards standing outside the door leading to the Sea Lord's box. Because we readers are a greedy sort, we want to see Aya give in to her desire straight away, but she's much smarter than we are and is patient in employing her plan. For now, she merely listens, noting that these two speak in a common tongue. The one that Aya has targeted, the one she started thinking of as her guard, is the one who speaks first, moaning of the climate over here in Bravos. He had heard that the free cities were all lemons and limes and oranges and nice weather, obviously never considering the fact that all nine free cities are not actually located in the same geographical space. Still, what that does do is allow for some flaming of fan fires about why Daenerys is so sure there are lemon trees in Bravos when, geographically speaking, there shouldn't be. We know there's always a lot of discussion around that and where those lemon trees are actually located and that kind of thing. I'm going to save that discussion for another time. I'm going to keep it focused on Aya for now. We've discussed that before. We will again. The Elder Guard standing alongside Aya's target is a bit more worldly. He knows the warmer weather is down south in Lys and Myrrh and Volantis. And he knows this from past experience when he visited Lys while working for Tywin Lannister back when he was hand for Aerys Targaryen. So in much the same vein, this is another little spark set in by George here to get the fandom talking. There is always much discussion about what Tywin was doing in Lys, and if this is some clue to a nefarious purpose or a hint in the larger story of the Lannisters. And actually, I'm not going to spend much time going over it here today, because as it happens, we had that exact question sent into us for 100 Questions on the Winds of Winter Part 2, which as we mentioned earlier, should be with you by now. That was sent in to us by beloved patron Grizzly M, and both myself and Emily had a crack at saying what we thought the inclusion of this meant, so you can always switch episodes and listen to that for a bit of a deeper dive. Suffice to say that for now, I don't think it is of huge importance or indicative of a larger secret. I explain why in the 100 Questions episode, but to me, I think it's more just a footnote than anything to do with a larger plot point. That's not to say we couldn't find out more about it in the future. That's not to say it won't tarnish Tywin's legacy some more, because we've already spent two books finding out how fake the guy was and how that legacy is tarnished anyway. I don't see any reason why wins would stop the trend. But as for conspiracies and such, no, it doesn't jump out to me. Regardless, the Elder Guard chides the Younger on not knowing that Bravos is north of King's Landing and therefore colder, that's what he should. The conversation turns to Harris Swift and how likely he is to linger in Bravos, and they assume probably a pretty long time, which makes sense. 
What is waiting back in King's Landing for Harris Swift? War from multiple angles? Famine soon enough? Political strife and concern so high he believes he's in physical danger? And he's right. And that's without remembering that he was recently commanded by Cersei Lannister. He was even actually an afterthought recently enough that no one cared about or respected. And then he's had this huge financial crisis dumped in his lap as well, despite none of it being his fault. A failure to deal with which might have very extreme repercussions. So compare that to the deal in Bravos, where he's being treated as some kind of celebrity. The playhouses, as we've seen, are full to the brim merely because of his presence. All that fuss is just for him. The biggest names in Bravos have all come out to speak with him. He matters. He's cared about. And it most likely does not hurt that here, hundreds of miles away from his wife, he is free to enjoy the company of the Black Pearl or whoever else. And most likely he's using the King's Landing dollar at the same time. So do you really think he's in a particular rush to get back? It is the Black Pearl the younger guard focuses on now, wondering if he might be allowed to enjoy a company too. The elder man berates him yet again. They are background. They don't matter. They don't exist for the most part. But then he sets off the alarms in our head yet again when he says, maybe it was different with Kurgain. So our hearts, they all tighten again, don't we? It's confirmation as if we needed more. And the man refers to Gregor as Sir. Oh, we've heard that before, right? As has Aya. While the younger guard distinguishes himself as quite the horrible being, while also reminding us of some of Gregor's crimes, Aya listens. She confirms for herself, and it seems like something could happen straight away, right here, but time works against both her and us. Her excuse was clever, but not everlasting. She'd been needed for more little odd jobs and keeping the place together for the performance is about to start, so George cruelly dangles us with exactly what we want to hear more of, and then snatches it away again, making us wait for later instead. He is the master of such tricks. Still, Aya is confident that she'll have time for her guardsmen later, and our excitement remains. So begins the bloody hand, with Bobono reciting the Lannister-based lines that we already heard earlier on in the chapter. With him is Maro, playing the role of the stranger, the role of death essentially. He is represented as a monster, but moves unseen to Bobono's Tyrion. The crowd sees though, and goes silent in respect for this god among them. We have the quote, The gate grew deathly quiet. Maro moved forward silently. So did Mercy. Yes, I very much doubt I need to point out the importance of a comparison between Aya and the representation of death, of the stranger. I think we've all made that one before. Luckily, it turns out our detour was only a short one. She got the place started, all the attention is misdirected, the snapper is busy, and Dana with him. Nobody is thinking about Mercy. So Aya remembers the lessons of one of her earliest mentors, and it becomes quiet as a shadow, to return to the two guardsmen in a now empty passageway. With the rest of the playhouse focused on the stage, she's free to put her plan into action. But she does not rush. Standing still as stone, she appraises her target and considers her best approach. Clearly, she has decided upon temptation. So funnily enough, the Aya slash Sansa mirroring makes an unexpected return. Both Stark girls are essentially doing the same thing in their early wins chapters. It's just that one of them is doing it in the framework of the nobility and one down in the ditches of the small folk. Aya will woo this guard, same as Sansa is supposed to woo Harry. She'll get him on his own. And then, well, she never mentions, but we know what we're hoping for. And yes, the uncomfortableness certainly does return. We don't want Aya to have to think in these terms. We don't want her to have to think of her slash Mercy's body in this way, or to even begin to engage such a disgusting man in such terms. But we also do quite want the result. She wonders if this is a possibility for Mercy in the first place. Does she have the body to tempt him? Yeah, strange roads we're walking here, but we likely know what's coming. Prior to finding out, she continues to listen. Her target is wondering whether Bobono is actually Tyrion himself, playing a very clever game of hiding in plain sight because no one would ever be mad enough to do that. In all fairness, it's not the dumbest idea we've ever heard, and you could talk yourself into Tyrion doing exactly that, but we all know that the guard doesn't really believe in it. Like many before him, instead of a human being, he's seeing a sack with a dollar sign on it. 
There's a chance for a payday or even a lordship, so why not take that chance? It's a thought process we know has been repeated all over both Essos and Westeros through the last two books. Countless innocent men have lost their lives, countless others have had their lives completely ruined, Penny being our largest example, all because of evil men like this guard, and the evil, foolish decision that Cersei made in the first place. We're never going to be allowed to forget this crime, it just keeps on taking. So the guard, likely still thinking of his jealousy for Harris Swift's current lifestyle, proposes that he might take that chance when the show is done. The irony here, of course, is that of all the victims of this crime we know about, not forgetting that there must be so many that have escaped our attention, but Bonnie would probably be the one who most deserves it if you want to stretch it that far. At least much more so than the Septon that Brienne met, or Penny's brother Oppo. In an odd way, Io actually ends up saving him, just for some more irony. On stage, Bobono is currently talking to the stranger now, making a deal with the devil, so to speak, as he recites lines incredibly close to what Tyrion actually did say at his trial. Or I think he did anyway. I might be confusing with the show slightly, but then again, one, that is one of the scenes that the show improves on, in my opinion. It must be said. But anyway, he says this, As I cannot be the hero, let me be the monster, and lessen them in fear in place of love. Aya seems to take that to heart, doesn't she? And makes her own agreement to play the role of death even if that is far from something new to her, as she now begins her own, true performance. Mercy mouthed the last lines along with him. They were better lines than hers, and apt besides. He'll want me or he won't, she thought. So let the play begin. She thinks one more thing before going ahead. The chant again. Mercy, mercy, mercy. The why of which will become clearer in a moment. She approaches the pair, speaking in bravosi, because that is the language that Mercy speaks, and she needs to be Mercy still. Unfortunately, it's a no-go, as we expected. Neither guard speaks that language, though it doesn't stop the younger one from making pretty eyes at her. Mentally, Aya gives a pretty funny curse. Fuss and feathers, which I think we should all adopt and make more use of. Fuss and feathers. That might have to be a series title here on the aisle. This is the next episode of Fuss and Feathers. Hmm. Yeah, we're going to have to come up with some brand new episodes just to fit that title. But she's cursing because she needs them to speak bravosi. None of the plan works if they're both speaking different languages. So she hits a roadblock, and as she hits it, she comes to a pretty major decision, one that she supposedly shouldn't allow. The House of Black and White definitely doesn't allow, and one that shows very clearly what is truly important to her. She breaks character. We have this quote. That was no good. Give it up or go ahead. She could not give it up. She wanted him so bad. That last sentence, like most of her thoughts about the young guard to this point, is painted as something sexual in nature. But we know the truth. We know what Aya actually wants of him. Vengeance and blood. So she reverts to her mother tongue, rules be damned. She makes the split. She goes after the true desire of Aya Stark, just like we wanted her to. She also refers to the two guards as lords. Aya is forever clever. She knows her target was just dreaming about lordship with his Bobono plan, and both of them are jealous of Harris Swift. They've bemoaned the fact that they are nothing. They're in the background, just like Mercy. So the way to get them sweet and interested is to pay them this initial compliment. It also gives her the in for her next line. She can pretend that as associates of the esteemed envoy, the one that Isambaro so wants to impress, she has been sent to entertain them by any means necessary. And unfortunately, we know this type of arrangement is all too real for either of them to be particularly suspicious. Even if they were to stop and think that this kind of thing isn't normally extended to your everyday guard, then the younger one at least isn't going to let that slow him down. He dreams of the Black Pearl. He dreams of Cersei's prize for Tyrion. Unsurprisingly, he very much hates his life, and if any sort of reward or prize comes before him, he's not going to ruin the opportunity by engaging his brain cells, especially not if it comes in female form. He doesn't waste a second, in fact. He immediately reaches out to grope Mercy, almost as a test of what she claims. The older guard proves himself not only to be more intelligent, but morally stronger as well. He points out that even if this kind of arrangement were okay, we're talking about a child here. He wants no part of it. 
and surprisingly, the younger guard is not bothered in the slightest. Is not bothered in the slightest, just so we can add on to his long list of crimes. He continues to assault her beneath her dress, so Aya suffers for the second time in one chapter. Yes, that uncomfortableness returns in waves. I suspect this time. It's such very strange ground that we're on because technically it's not Aya's body being molested if we agree that wearing a face does indeed change an entire body, not just the face. We kind of have to hope that's true at this point, but it is still Aya. It's still her soul. It's still her experiencing it. So that really should just break us all into a million pieces having to read such so explicitly. Yes, it is true this is a situation she's put herself in this time around and it seems like a necessary step for her to achieve her goal something she apparently considers worth it but that doesn't mean it's not really really hard to read we should all be left heartsick after such after reading how one of our original most beloved characters an actual child lest we forget is suffering through this choice or not it simply should not be and it of course restarts that conversation that we had earlier on about the long-term effects that this will have on Aya's psyche and things of that nature a topic we can barely begin to broach in all honesty to refute the older guard, Mercy claims she is a maiden now, which is all the invitation that the young guard needs as he finally gives us a name. Not for long, said the comely one. I'm Lord Rafford, sweetling, and I know just what I want. Hike up those skirts now and lean back against that wall. Yes, Raff. Raff the sweetling. Rafford, of all the evils in the world, he's the one that's been returned to us. Raff the human stain, the walking pile of putrid filth. Disgusting in his actions, disgusting in his appearance and description, disgusting in the words that he gives Mercy here. I don't think you need too much a reminder of who Rafford is, but just in case you do, he is the one who killed Lommy Greenhands right back in Clash, he killed a screaming mother, three-year-old was smashed apart of a spiked mace, and he also told the possibly the darkest story we've ever heard in these books about Gregor again and the poor girl at the inn. That was when he was added to Aya's list all that long time ago. And many might have already guessed this given the mountain's connection. But even with that, I feel the confirmation of the name is a big moment. You'll note that Aya has refrained from thinking it to herself. She obviously recognised him, but she never thought the name Rafford. In fact, she won't until the end of the chapter. Almost like she's savouring the moment. And we might be doing the same. Whoever this was, whoever this was, we were always hungry for the hook, for the effect on Aya. But knowing precisely who it is, well, it's George playing his old trick again, isn't it? He teaches us about vengeance being bad for everyone and careful what we wish for and all that kind of thing. And just like that, it always goes flying out of our heads as we clamour around to see exactly what I is going to do to Rafford. To the evil, awful Rafford. It's tension at its finest. The chapter structure is built to this moment brilliantly, as if anyone could bear to put the book down at this point. Within that tension is still genuine worry about what could happen to Aya. She's in a vulnerable position with a more than dangerous man, but we're also confident and hungry as ever. And looking at what Raf said... We also know how effective she's already been. He calls himself Lord Rafford. She's offered the chance to disassociate for a while, live out the fantasy. He can be a lord, a lord of a courtesan. She has him completely enchanted. And the fact that he says the word sweetling is not lost in us either. Using this advantage, she puts the next part of her plan into action. Moving to another place. Silly Raff, did Pate teach you nothing? Never move to a second location with a faceless man. The older guard has one more go at professionalism and keeping Raff here, but he likely knows it's a losing battle. Raff wants his rewards. The temptation is too great. This won't take long, he says. No, she thought, it won't. And this is about the time when all the readers shift forward on their chairs, or if you're like me, get up and start clapping with glee over what justice we're about to see. So back out into the fog we go now, with Mercy attempting to keep the spell up by talking to Raff about mummery and learning lines. She even offers to teach him one. Unfortunately, this monster's hunger is high, and he does not want to wait as Mercy, our little Aya, 
gets pressed up against a wall. George knows our excitement for what's coming, and he's going to make us crawl through the mud to get there. The reading gets all the harder now, if we're honest. We're talking grabbed wrists, we're talking forced, slimy tongues. The fact that Aya has to kiss back, it's tough. That's no other way to describe it, really. As we said right at the beginning, George is not pulling punches. He's going to make us experience the true soul hurt of Aya going through this. We have to feel every line, and I think we all do. It is awful. It is truly awful. It's George playing with us in all honesty, because I think on balance, if we were told we could have Aya not go through this, but we wouldn't get that bloody justice either, we'd probably go for that option, as much as we might want the bloody justice. That's just how tough this passage is. Luckily, Aya finds a way out. She promises her room is not far, and that they must go now because she needs to be back for her rape, again, making us uncomfortable with the casualness of how she says that, and Raph's grin at it doesn't help either, does it? But it works. They run together, back through the fog, Aya full on paying the part of a siren or a grumpkin or whatever. It paints quite the mental picture. And before you know it, we're back in the room in which we started, with Aya trying to persuade Raph to have a little nap, but he believes he's waited long enough. He pulls her close again, orders her to take her clothes off, to which Aya has this heart-thumping reply. Mercy, she said. My name is Mercy. Can you say it? Mercy, he said. My name is Raph. I know. She slipped her hand between his legs. Ah, the importance of names. The double up in the meaning of hers. The confirmation of his. The confirmation she knows full well who he is. A person she would never forget. The relation of mercy with this man. He had no mercy in him when we first met, so he'll receive none now. George has us completely caught in the stream. It's as dramatic a moment as any in these preview chapters, probably more so. We did really have to work for it, but we are most definitely here. The laces, he urged her. Be a sweet girl and undo them. Instead, she slid her finger down along the inside of his thigh. He gave a grunt. It's so subtle. It's so quiet and unnoticeable. There's nothing brash about this. This is a killer's cut. An assassin's cut. This is a shadow's cut. And ever dedicated until the end, Aya stays in role as Mercy suddenly steps away, gasping in surprise and horror. She's even the one to tell Raph that he's bleeding. And while he's suddenly realising what's going on and looking for someone to blame, he naturally suspects foul play because of his own nature, Mercy is playing the complete innocent. She's even asking him to stop it because it's scaring her. She's presenting a front of someone who would never be able to do something like that because it's absolutely true. Mercy wouldn't. So it's a good job that Aya is actually Aya, isn't it? It's a smart play as well. Because of who Raph is, his initial reaction would be to strike out. He's a strong soldier, he could kill her with ease. But this surprised front from Mercy is just enough to keep him off balance and confused for a couple of seconds. And she knows that's all she needed, because seconds is all he's got. The confusion is now aided by severe blood loss. He's already dazed. The blood is flowing, squirting through his fingers. The smallest cut can do wonders if you know where to put it. So this is another presentation of all that Aya has learnt and how dangerous she can be with such knowledge and skills. Although it must be said, I think this is actually something she got from Yoren such a long, long time ago. At least it is in the show. I think that's the same in the books, isn't it? When he warns the guard about arteries and things that could be done with small cuts. I can't remember, but it definitely is in the show. Seeing how much blood is pouring from the wound allows Aya to mentally take some pleasure in what she's done. She reflects that Raph is already changing. His looks are fading. He's pale, he's frightened, and she loves it, and so do we. The strong soldier with his dreams of lordship and courtesans and rewards is now reduced to begging. He wants a towel, he wants a rag, he just wants it to stop. When he tries to stand, he falls to the floor. Now he pleads for help. He asks the mother herself for mercy, which is ironic. If anything, the man should be glad that he never met Mother Merciless, as he asks Aya to fetch a healer. Aya, with some amazing foresight and planning, tells him there is a healer, but he'll need to walk to him. 
and she does this because, as with the tickler, which was all blind, raw rage, remember, Aya has a grand sense of the moment and what needs to be said. Let me read the ending to you here at length. Walk? His fingers were slick with blood. Are you blind, girl? I'm bleeding like a stuck pig. I can't walk on this. Well, she said, I don't know how you'll get there then. You'll need to carry me. See, thought Mercy, you know your line, and so do I. Think so? asked Aya sweetly. Raph the sweetling looked up sharply as the long, thin blade came sliding from her sleeve. She slipped it through his throat beneath the chin, twisted, and ripped it back out sideways with a single smooth slash. A fine red rain followed, and in his eyes the light went out. Valor Mogulis, Aya whispered, but Raph was dead and did not hear. <sighs> it's nothing short of simple, fantastic writing. Aya perfectly orchestrates exactly what she wants to hear as she links this chance meeting all the way back to the cruel killing of Lommy Greenhands, orphan of King's Landing. Does she do it to make him realise what crime he's paying for? Well, maybe a small percentage is pointing it that way, but I think both she and we all know the chances of Raph even remembering Lommy and next to Zero. He simply doesn't care enough. But I remembers. She does not forget, and to her it is important to have it announced here, to tell the reason why. Though, like we mentioned, we must also remember that Lommy was far from Raph's only crime. It was the telling of the story about the girl that got him put on the list. It was his cruelty and evilness towards human life in general. No doubt there are a hundred more victims that this is for, but it's important that Aya knows, same as it was with the tickler. Somewhere inside, she's still Ned Stark, dispensing justice because of a crime. She's not just a random murderer, she's punishing someone. She's doing what she can to make things right. She's honouring Lommy, and the girl, and the small folk who suffered, and all the rest. Whether that's as one of them, whether it's as a noble woman fulfilling her duty, or just because she's a good person, who knows, I'll leave to you. The point is, through this bloody act of violence, lies, and manipulation, Aya Stark has just made the world a little bit better. Thus, George continues to put our heart in conflict. Vengeance is bad, vengeance rots, we have to see Aya go through things we would never, ever want her to go through to achieve this goal, but we can't deny it's a net plus. Raph is dead, as he should be, and Aya got to cross a name off her list. There is a reason that, when the time came for the blade to come out and for the act to actually happen, Aya thinks of herself as Aya for the very first time in the chapter. Let's go back and check. That's the first time it's used in the whole thing. We didn't even get one of those moments where she thinks, that was Aya Stark's memory or something like that. The name has simply not been mentioned. So if we're going to look at Sansa and the time she thinks of herself as Elaine and the time she thinks of herself as Sansa and the significance of each incident, we need to do the same here. And it's pretty self-explanatory. Aya is Mercy all the way through this chapter, 100% until it's literally time to kill Raph, to take revenge, to do justice. That is when she gives in. That is when she allows herself to be hooked. And most importantly, internally admits to herself that that is what she's doing. She knows this is an Aya thing and she's good with that which will obviously have huge repercussions later. Whatever happens plot-wise, this is a huge, huge step to getting rid of no one and returning to full-on Aya, reclaiming that sense of self and getting a true direction most likely pointing back to Westeros. I don't know if it's as simple as liking how this crossing off of a name feels and wanting to do more of it. I think it'll play a part, but the larger emotional push will probably be hearing about John or meeting the girl who played her own role of Aya or something to get her to the Riverlands, but there's no denying that this is huge. It's her largest step by a mile, and therefore another reason that we bloody love it. We'll come back to such thoughts in a moment. For now, we have Aya saying her favourite catchphrase, Valamogulis, and then coldly thinking about how it would have been easier to kill him downstairs. Now she has to drag the body down so that he can go and join Darien in the dark canal waters. That's how removed she is from emotion about killing, that she can think so simply in terms of logistics. And that's not great. 
You'll notice there is in fact zero emotion around this act. That's all us projecting onto her. Aya doesn't actually show it at all. She doesn't show victory, she doesn't show pleasure or anything like that. That doesn't mean it's not there, but she definitely is keeping a straight face. We don't want her removed that way either, but it's hard to concentrate on such right now. Aya sings the mercy song again because of the connection it has to Raph's past, because of the idea of the gifts of mercy that she has just given, but also because she's saying goodbye to her life. She was careful in planning this, but there are still too many trails left to follow. Dana knows, the Elder Guard knows, and likely, more importantly, the faceless men will know and pull her away from that role anyway. So like with Cat of the Canals, Aya had come to like this new world and her place in it. She's always been looking for a sort of home, and she did have a place here with Dana and the rest. You know, it wasn't perfect, as we saw, but it meant something to her, and she liked who Mercy had been. A simple, good-hearted girl who didn't have to kill. Yeah, maybe Raph wasn't the only one hunting some disassociation. She did know that Mercy was temporary anyway, but it still sucks. To leave again and have to find another role, if the faceless men do allow it, well, we'll come back to that in a second. Either way, she'll complete the job of the day. She'll put Raph in the water, but she'll also go back, do her part on stage as if nothing's happened at all. But after that, Mercy will be gone, the ire will remain. And yet George still has to leave us with the twisting of the knife with the rape line just to finish up. <laughs> Thanks, George. So then let's talk repercussions because Aya straight up says she knows this is going to make trouble between the Sea Lord and Harris Swift. I very much doubt anyone is dredging up Raph's body, but his death or murder is going to be assumed. I would guess that the older guard is going to say he went off with some girl. That girl can no longer be found. And really, it'll be anyone's guess whether she killed him or someone else did or what happened. But those are the gaps which we know can immediately be filled. It's easy to imagine a paranoid Harris Swift being very worried about one of his guards dying suddenly. I'm not sure what possible reason he could think of for the Sea Lord or Isambaro or anyone else doing this, but again, these sorts of people don't always have much truck with logic. He might think it was an attempt to gain information. He might think it was an attempt at intimidation. He might believe it to be completely random, but will pretend he views it as one of the first two things to give him an edge at the negotiating table. An offence against his honour, that kind of thing. It might convince him to get the hell out of there and actually go back to Westeros with a deal incomplete. It might bring the current Sea Lord into the story much more strongly. Does some argument bring him onto the side of the Iron Bank and have them much more involved with the goings-on in Westeros than they were before? We know that's been a story before in history, thanks to Fire and Blood, when we were concerned with Alyssa Farman and the dragon's eggs and things of that nature, so it's possible. But to be honest, the fallout from such things is too far in the future to really guess at. Isambaro could also be implicated, as we said. She did say that Isambaro sent her. Maybe the older guard tells of that, and Isambaro is killed by one or the other side. Imagine if the gate is burned down, or all its employees killed, and maybe we get a storyline of Aya realising what her personal vengeance has cost. I hope not, personally, but very, very possible. Which leads us on to the faceless men. We're going to go out on a limb and say they're not going to be pleased. This is the second time Aya has done this now, when it's like their main rule that you're really not supposed to. You're supposed to kill those that you're paid to kill. You're not supposed to retain your sense of self and your old hatreds. And when you come down to it, you aren't supposed to keep bloody breaking the rules. How effective a faceless man could she actually be if she doesn't listen and keeps messing up their plans and connections? Which gives us two options, really. Number one, this is the final straw. Aya has gone too far and is out of the programme. There are deviations within this choice as well. Would she be kicked out or would she be killed? We'd most likely guess the latter, given how much she knows. So if we land on this one, we assume it will come down to Aya getting on the run as quickly as possible and leaving Bravos back for home. This Rafford hook will turn out to be the thing that gets her back to Westeros and back to her identity. Does she go with a bunch of stolen faces? Does she have to fight or kill someone to get out? Is she upset about going, or does she realise that she does really want to be Aya again? All are equally possible, really. I think we definitely like the option of her wanting to be Aya again, though there's sure to be some melancholy on some level, because Aya likes competing at things she doesn't want to fail at becoming a faceless man. 
Option number two, well that is that the faceless men say this is bad but it's not over quite yet. Option one is very possible depending on what George wants included in this book. We know this arc overall is a remnant of the five year gap where he's had to play catch up and adjust things and cut some corners, but how does that work with the wins that he envisions now? Does he want her very quickly back to Westeros, or at least on the road there, to do whatever she's going to do? Yes, we could very easily imagine that being the case. If so, we'll have this chapter, perhaps another one detailing her getting out or running away or whatever it is, and then back to Westeros for the rest. Super, great, very possible again. But it's also just as easy to imagine that either not coming along in this book at all, or just going a bit further down the road. It's impossible to guess, we just do not know. But for either of them to come about, you need option two. The faceless men are pissed, but ultimately keep her around. They might do this with another punishment, scheduled or otherwise, maybe it's her ears that go this time. They might do it with a stern word or beating or demoting her back below face-wearing level again. Maybe Isambaros does suffer and they call that her punishment. Hmm. And I must admit I lean towards option two, personally. Much as I'd like Aya to get back to Westeros as soon as possible, I can't get the idea of the faceless men needing Aya for something out of my head. We discussed it a lot back in the feast and especially the dance episodes. They really seem to go out of their way to keep her. They ignore a lot of their own rules and they really did put her on the super fast track in terms of learning. Why they are doing this, I'm still unsure. But I think that for whatever reason, whether it's the ability, maybe they just need a young girl, whatever it is, they'd really rather keep her and try and use her for whatever it might be. And this might fit better in terms of structure. Really, it would just delay option one until a little bit later on in the book, and then we'd still likely get the same outcomes. The only one that could be added is either sent out on another mission, and just out and out leaves in the middle of it to better her chances. She might even want to leave right now, but will keep playing the game to escape punishment slash death, or because she wants to steal something, or whatever else. I still think we'll likely end up seeing the same stuff. A fight to get out, a scary escape from Bravos, or something of that nature. But I think it'd fit a bit better structurally to delay it just that little bit longer. That would allow for the meeting with Jane Poole or whatever else is going to happen there. But there'll definitely be ripples. It would be fairly unlike George for there to not be cost to this. This might sway what happens with Bravos, what happens with the Faceless Men, whether the two are merged together. But most of all it's going to affect Aya. I don't think she just goes back to work like she did after Darien. Maybe in the interim, sure. But there is a chasm of difference between Darien and Wrath. This will mean something more. This will tempt her away. It might take time, but this is it. This is her return of self. This is the return of her to us and to the book and to be honest i'm pretty much going to wrap it up there for you this is another one uh, it could just go on for ages and ages i think you saw last week i was going on about arian too how much i could ramble at the end there well i could certainly do that for Aya and for this chapter this wonderfully crafted chapter is so much more poetic than other ones we've seen definitely in comparison to something like arianne and the travel chapter and as I told you at the beginning, it is expansive. The world building's off the charts. We know whether we're going to actually use any of it or not is another discussion. But the world building, amazing character that we look at through the eyes of mercy. Again, seeing the world through so different a person's eyes, how that relates to Aya. And then this big, big single moment. Ugh. I'm not going to go on about it because I will take another half an hour of your time. But I think you'll agree there's a reason this chapter is so beloved and so focused on and discussed so much. It's because it's amazing. It is just amazing. And you can probably also hear my voice is going because I got quite into this chapter and I'm imagining that you did too. As we should. It's brilliant. It's top stuff. But I will leave it there. I'm just happy to have been able to read it and revisit Aya. We're so lucky to have had it as a preview chapter and yet it really is the peak of the mountain. But we've still got some more cracking ones to go through. Next up is the other one I mentioned as 
very much discussed and looked at is the Forsaken. Aaron Greyjoy, who yes, I do hate, I do hate having to read, but the Forsaken is a bit of an exemption, isn't it? So I'm sure you're all looking forward to that one. That will be next week as we, to be fair, rush towards the end of these preview chapters. Don't forget, part two of 100 Questions on the Winds of Winter is out probably by the time you're listening to this. So make sure you get, make sure you give that a go. Watch out for part three and all the other parts that are coming after. The Sporkle Spectacular with Emily is also coming very soon, possibly by the time you hear this even. And we have a patron-only guest interview as well if you're interested in such things. My voice is rapidly going now, as you can hear. So I'm going to leave you with my thanks, as always. It's been a blast to be here on the Isle of You. Thank you to our patrons. Thank you to everyone else. Do subscribe or like or any of those things if you can. Or hey, just get in touch and send a message and just have a chat because we love that as well. Thank you, everybody. We will see you next time on the Isle of Faces, the Scraps and Scrolls. <laughs>